So there's a, a fascinating article uh, last January in the BMG Medical Journal Group. Um, they publish a whole host of different medical journals in various fields, one of them being psychology. And one of the things they, they did was a case study of a guy that around 39 years old started to go blind. Um, by the time he was 47, he was fully legally blind. And by the time he was 56, so about just under 10 years after he had fully lost his sight, they were able to perform a surgery that restored his sight. And so there was a guy that had been blind for a decade. You know, he wasn't born blind. He, he spent most of his life, he was older than me when he still had his eyesight. And so for me, that's like, oh, this could happen like four years from now. That's about, right? that's scary. But when he got his sight back, one of the fascinating things was that they discovered that though he physically had perfectly functional sight, he had all kinds of struggles that resulted out of that whole surgery. Him being able to see messed with him psychologically. And so there are things over those 10 years that he had learned to do a certain way that he struggled to relearn to do the way that he had done them for almost four decades prior. Right? So like he would trip on things, he would run into things, he struggled with depth perception, and everything about his physical eyesight was fully functional but his mind had learned how to do things without sight. And so you know, he, he was able to, uh, you know, quick reactions, like driving was virtually impossible because his, his brain just hadn't caught up to, to do with his eyes what his eyes physically were again able to do. Um, he struggled a lot with things like eye contact and the various rules of engagement as we talk to one another, right? When you communicate with someone, you realize that most of what you do communication-wise is not the words, but it's you know, body language and eye and contact and how you look, right? Look down versus look at a person. And so for 10 years, he hadn't looked at anybody, and so he just had to relearn all of those things, right? He struggled with all those things. And even a year after the surgery, he reported that he still had an unbelievable amount of anxiety just to figure out how to function in day-to-day -day life. Uh, and he'd made comments that there's times where he almost wished he was blind again because things were a little bit easier Obviously not at first, but, but as the years had gone on. I tell you this because this morning we're looking at an account in John 9 of, of Jesus healing a blind man. And he's healing a man that has been blind since birth. Right? So we're not talking about 40 years of sight, 10 years of no sight, and then getting it back. We're talking about this guy has never seen. And a lot of times when we look at the miracles of Christ... You know, we just read them as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah, you restored a blind guy's sight. We don't think about, like, the life of the person and how it was affected. And I think it's fascinating to try to imagine this guy getting his sight back, or not back, getting his sight for the first time, to, to look at perhaps family members and people that he had encountered and heard for the first time ever with his eyes and to see things. And one of the other things to note is in this miracle, it talks about, when, when, the, when the guy receives his sight, how he just, he functions, right? There's no mention of, and he would walk into walls because his brain didn't know how to see, <laughs> even though he physically could see, right? So when the Lord heals his blindness, it actually goes so much further than just eye surgery, you know, cosmic heavenly eye surgery. He's actually repairing far more than that. He's restoring this guy in a way that goes far beyond, right? He's doing for this guy more than the doctors did for, for this, for this dude last year. And so it's just worth, as we dig into texts like today, to think about the implications of these miracles. These are real people with real issues and real messes and real consequences, right? And so when a lame man walks, 
You know, maybe he doesn't know how to walk. But, but in, in the process of the miracle and the restoration, the Lord restores far more than just the physical legs. He actually enables them to do things normally. And so this is why this guy goes around and talks to people. And he's called in to speak to the Pharisees. And he speaks to the Pharisees. And he's able to just function with them. Right? His restoration, when Jesus heals and performs miracles, goes so much deeper than just a, something that surgeons today could have done. Right? There's a holistic nature to the way that Jesus performs miracles miracles. So this morning as we look at our text, uh, that's, that's what I want us to keep in mind. And then we'll look at some implications because as it is in the book of John, remember, every miracle is not a miracle but a... Oh, come on. Every miracle is not a miracle but a... Thank you. Because they point to something, right? Jesus doesn't just heal a blind guy because he's blind and he feels like it. He's using everything he does throughout the Gospels to point to something about the reality of his kingdom. And so as we look at this sight restoration today... That's what we have to keep in our mind. We have to understand that that's how Jesus operates. So with that said, let's continue our tradition. Uh, let's stand together as we read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. We'll stand in, in the appreciation of the word of God, because what God says is more important than anything that I could say. So if you look at a sermon, the most important part of it is the next 30 seconds, not what comes after in the next, I don't know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. With me, you never know, right? All right, let's read together the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, Who do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This passage is unique 
in terms of John's structure. Uh, it's not the only time this happens, but usually what we see in the book of John is a miracle of some kind, and then inevitably some type of statement about who God is. Right? So, so he does the loaves and the fishes, and he feeds the 5,000, and then when he's on the other end of the river, and he, the people are questioning about it, he says, I am the bread of life, right? having just done this. This one is different because the statement of Jesus actually happens in the chapter before what we just read. Right? In verse 8, 12, Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the context in this passage is really, really important. Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world, right? Whoever walks with me won't be in darkness. He makes that statement in the middle of the temple, and he does it right at the end of what the Jews celebrated as the Feast of Booths. Talk about a great party theme, right? If you're going to have a party at your house, let's have a Feast of Booths. What is the Feast of Booths? Right? It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. You might have heard it that way. If you have people that are friends with that are Jewish, it would be Sukkot in Hebrew. People would talk about maybe celebrating Sukkot. That's not me flexing my Hebrew knowledge, but that's a word that if you have friends in the Jewish community, you might have actually heard them say that kind of like Seder. Right? And so the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles or Booths was celebrated by God's people in October each year in the fall as, number one, a thank you for, for the harvest, and kind of a prayer for the upcoming rainy season, but then more importantly, as a reminder of the desert wandering in the wilderness before they were brought to their promised land. And so these, the folks would make these temporary structures to, to live in for a time, and, and, and after that was done, towards the end of the Feast of Booths, it was probably one of the biggest party feasts that the Jews had. Of all the different things and celebrations they had, things got rowdy at the Feast of Booths. At the very, what they would do is in the temple they would have these big cauldrons that were like these fire cauldrons that would light up the sky. And when it was lit up, like most of the city would be lit by it. Like you could go outside and you could see in the distance, see the light light up the sky. It's kind of like when there's a fireworks night, right, in Cleveland. Like if you live anywhere near Cleveland, like it's just bright, you can see it, right? It would light up the place. And so it was probably one of the brightest nights of the Jewish calendar. And if you want an idea, this is kind of a representation of what these cauldrons look like. They had a bunch of them. They would be in the temple, and you could see people kind of dancing and being merry around them, and the flames would be super high. And so Jesus makes his statement as they have extinguished these flames at the end of the feast. So we've just seen this massive celebration of lights, brighter than any other night, and it's done, and Jesus comes into the midst of that in the temple, and he says, by the way, I'm the light of the world. What's he saying? My, my light, whatever that means, is significantly brighter than, than this. Like, you think that was cool? There is a light that I bring to this world that is above and beyond anything that you could ask for or imagine. Right? And that's chapter 8. And, and the remainder of chapter 8 is probably one of the more intense interchanges that Jesus has with the religious leadership. He does all kinds of things. He has the bluntest language in, in, in much of the book of John in this chapter. I would encourage you to go and read it. One of the things he tells them, he straight up just says, I am from above and you are from below. <laughs> you don't say that to the, the uppity religious leaders, right? 
Like, do you have any like, friends of yours that are uppity if you went up to them and you're like, you know, I'm above you. And you're like below me. <laughs> they probably wouldn't be your friend anymore, right? They're arguing about Abraham and Moses and all kinds of things. And then Jesus says the thing that makes them so angry. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? So he's now calling himself. Earlier he talked about being, being greater than Moses. Right? Moses isn't the one who sustained you in the wilderness with the manna. It was me. It was God. And I am him. Right? Now he's saying, I'm greater than Abraham too. And so when he says this, the people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in the temple attempt to stone Jesus. They start picking up rocks. Like things get real tense and real ugly in the middle of church. Can you imagine me saying a statement in church here in this context, offensive enough that people start picking up their hymnals and they're like, I think I could make it to him. Like if I get a headshot, he won't say anything. Any other. <laughs> right? Who voted this guy in? Right? They're, they're getting ready. They just don't want to just get him out of the temple or to, to, to belittle his ideas or to argue with them. They want him dead. Because you do not talk about being better than Abraham in the Jewish people's temple. Abraham had, had sainthood status. Abraham, Moses, all those guys. Man, you better subordinate yourself under them. And Jesus already said he was better than Moses. Now he's saying, yeah, before Abraham was like even a thing, I am. Not even I was, but I am. Because God has no beginning or end, right? And so that's, that's chapter 8, and the chapter ends with them picking up stones to stone him. And so with that in mind, that's where our passage today picks up, right? The passage, chapter 9, verse 1 opens with, as he passed by, he's walking out of the temple. Jesus has literally just talked about, I am the light of the world, you'll all see through me, I'm greater than Abraham. People start to want to pelt rocks at him, so he leaves, because that's the smart move to make when people want to stone you. You should do that. That's life advice. What did you learn in the sermon today? If people want to throw rocks at you, leave. Right? And he walks out, and as he's, so the passage we read today is happening as he's walking out of the temple with people behind him getting ready to pelt rocks. He walks out, and at the entrance of the temple, he sees this man who has been blind from birth. And he's a beggar. And so he stops and he demonstrates a miraculous healing to this guy. You see, like the imagery is just dripping. I am the light of the world. I'm bigger than Abraham ever was. Stones. All right, bye. There's a guy who can't see. I'm going to miraculously provide him light. Do you see what Jesus is doing and what he's saying about his kingdom in this passage? Here's what he's saying. The notion here is that look what happens when the light of the world leaves the church and goes out into the world. Right? I, just, I, I tried to communicate the light to the people that, that knew everything about what there is to know about church and leadership and everything in it. They weren't, they weren't listening. They tried to stone me. So I walk out and tangibly I am going to represent what it actually means to be the light of the world because I'm going to give this guy's eyes light that he has never seen before from birth. That's a huge statement. It's this tangible sign of the reality that he was just arguing about with the religious people. And it's also a miracle that harkens back to prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 
5 through 6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There's a description of what will come when the Messiah comes. And so the Jewish people, if they would pay attention, there's prophecy that talks about when Jesus comes, the blind are going to start to see. What happens? He walks out, he sees a blind guy, he enables him to see. He's communicating something. The Messiah has arrived. The new kingdom is getting ushered in. Something different is coming. You better get ready. You want to stone me? Great. I'll go out of the temple and I'll do my work out into the world. That's a message to us, by the way, about what we should be doing as as a body of God's people, right? We, We ought to be here and gather, but then when we scatter, we better take the light that we experience in here out into the world. Just like Christ demonstrates tangibly what it means to be the light of the world, so the church is called to do that, to be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That is a call to us as the people of God, and we ought to heed it. He's fulfilling that prophecy. Now, before he heals, the disciples ask a question. Right? They walk out, they encounter the blind guy, Jesus stops, and the disciples ask a seemingly odd question. They just say, oh, yeah, here's a blind guy. Jesus, who do you think sinned? Like him or his parents? It's a weird question to ask. Do you ever see like a disabled person out in the community and just <laughs> say, you know, I wonder, wonder if they sinned or their parents sinned? Seems... In the Jewish thought and culture then, when you had people that had those kinds of disabilities, it was believed that they were a result of, of, of sin, either from themselves or a hereditary type of type of thing, right? And so it, it was very much understood that, that the, the things that befall people are somehow a, a punishment or a, a discipline for the way that they have behaved. And so there's, there's an assumption that, well, if the blind guy is there, he's probably there for a reason. Now, before we skip over how weird that is, ask yourself if we in some ways aren't just like that. Aren't we just like the disciples? Do you ever drive and get on the exit and see the guy asking for cash? And you ask yourself, I wonder what he did wrong in life to get there. I wonder what's wrong with him. I bet he's a drunk. It's probably booze that did it. Right? I mean, it's great he's begging. We're in a, we're in a job market where you can, anyone who wants a job can get a job. He should get a job. Now, those things might be true, but, but do you see what we do here? We, we, we don't know. Right? We don't know the life of, of that person. You know, if you, if you drive and you see a sign of disabled veteran, we don't know if they're completely lying about their circumstance just to get money. We don't know. Right? There's, there's people that beg that call themselves disabled veterans that they aren't disabled or veterans and they make $120,000 a year begging in certain parts of the country. There are people who are genuinely struggling who, whether it's because of physical ailments or just life circumstance or mental illness, they can't pick themselves up and they need help. But we don't know. But when we drive by, hey, I wonder what they did to get there. It had to have been something about the, the choices they made. Maybe. But maybe not. And the way that Jesus engages the situation tells us another thing about his kingdom. The disciples ask that. And Jesus answers this. He says, you know, neither of them sinned. 
Now, we know that's, that's a metaphorical statement. It's not true, right? Every single human that has ever lived, that has ever been on this earth apart from Jesus Christ, is a sinner in the sight of God. And so, of course, this blind man had sinned, just as the disciples had sinned, just as the Pharisees had sinned, right? Just as his parents had sinned. But Jesus says, no, it's not it's not because of any of their, their sin. Uh, this man is born blind so that through him the, the glory of God might be displayed. He's saying, look, this guy's blind so that I can do what I'm about to do to show you something about the way it works. Because while you're over here arguing about why he would be blind and what sin could have caused it and, and talking in theological constructs and abstract notions... I'm going to go get some dirt and rub it on his face and make him see. I'm going to step into his mess and I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to help. Right? Now, do you need to drop a hundred bucks on every person with a sign that you drop? No. But it is a lesson to us about the way that we treat people and the way that we think about it. We love to somehow get on our theological high horse, Right? Don't we just love to do that sometimes? We love to think about why people are sinners in the way they are and why, you know, if, why our government officials make decisions the way they do. And, oh, it's because they you know, they're harlots that don't, don't seek after God at all. You know, they're, they're just terrible people. And if they only did what Jesus would do, what I knew what I would do if I was in their shoes. Right? Like we, we just, man, we have such a self-righteousness inherent in us when we stop for a second and think about it. We do, and it's bad. Jesus just turns and heals. Because that's how grace works. It's not merited. He doesn't heal based on your church attendance. He doesn't heal or work in the lives of people based on how many Sunday school classes you've led in your day or how many potlucks you attended or how many of the questions on the table of that potluck you're able to answer flawlessly. None of that. He, he applies his grace in an unmerited way equally to all who are willing to come to him. That's it. That's the beauty of grace, is that it's unmerited. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. He just helps the guy. It's just so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus, through this simple healing, communicates mountains about his kingdom works. The sins of the blind man is real, the sins of the disciples are real. The sins of the Pharisees are real. And every one of them in the kingdom of God are equal. And they all need their blindness removed. So that's the next thing. Jesus is moving from physical reality to spiritual reality. That's where the sign nature of it comes in. right? It's the great irony that he leaves the temple full of people who claim to see that are really blind. And he goes and he heals the one who is blind, and he is enabled to see. And when this guy is healed, he stirs a controversy. Read all of chapter 9 when you get home. It is intense. The guy is brought to the Pharisees with his sight restored, because some of the people that he encounters are like, this is nuts. He's never been able to see. We should bring him to the Pharisees and ask, what up? And so they come in. And the Pharisees are asking questions. They're like, well, how did you see? Well, the, the, Jesus put mud in my eyes and told me to wash. And when I washed, I, I had sight. Well, that's, that's not right, right. They don't believe at first that the man was blind. Well, maybe he was never blind to begin with. Right? When we see like healing miracles in the world happen, that's a lot of times, well, they, well, they were never lame. They just faked it. 
Maybe he was blind. Let's go find his parents. So the Pharisees go and get his parents and ask questions about his blindness. And the parents back it up. Well, yeah, of course he's blind. And then they bring the guy out and the parents see him and they're like, wait, you can see? And so they realize, no, he really was blind. Well, Jesus couldn't. Well, he's, he's a sinner. He can't be God. Um, it's the Sabbath. He did this on the Sabbath. You can't do miracles on the Sabbath. You can't be God if you do miracles on the Sabbath. They really love their Sabbath laws. Didn't you notice that? This is like the fourth time as we've been in the Gospel of John where the Lord does something crazy and miraculous. And the people's response, the leader's response is, yeah, but he did it on a Saturday. And that's not the rules. Really? And so they conclude that he can't possibly be from God because of that. But some of the Pharisees start to question, and so there's some division and quarreling among them, right? And at the end of the chapter, Jesus encounters the blind man again, and it's worth looking at what that says. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. It's a really fancy way of saying it's me. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see the paradox there. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? And Jesus really wanted to say, yep. But instead, he said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The moment we claim that we on our own have the ability to see, to understand, to function, to live life in a way that edifies and glorifies the Lord, the moment we get into the mode of self-righteousness where we say we're doing this on our own accord is when things go really, really bad really quickly. Most of us have accepted Jesus as our Savior. Most of us have accepted Jesus as our Lord. But we function in a world through this lens of self-righteousness. When we encounter people who appear so far from the way that we expect Christians to act and behave, how do we see them, think of them, treat them? If we're honest, we expect those people to clean themselves up before they come here. How many of you in your life have someone who you really wish would come to church, but you, just, you, you want to invite them here because they're rough, and they probably just don't fit? People here would look at them funny. It's crazy to me. The, the way that we think about sharing the gospel and evangelism and the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of new believers is so backwards. Right? We understand that we need Jesus to see. But yet we, who see through Jesus, we expect the world to figure out how to see before they see him. Right? We do this in all kinds of ways in life. Let's go, let's go from, from, from preaching to meddling here in a little bit. You know, we, this is how we apply the sexual ethic in the world that we live in, don't we? we have some, as Christians, we have some beliefs that don't align themselves with the world in terms of how sexuality is to be used and worked and how God has given it to us. But what we do is we thump our beliefs out into the world. And anytime the world does something counter to the faith, we get mad and we pound our fists and we protest on the other side of whatever protesters are, you know, you go to the Supreme Court and you've got all the, all the liberals and all the conservatives and most of the, the Christians are over here and they're yelling at each other. We expect the world 
to act the way that God calls us to without actually having been enabled to see through him. Imagine if instead of harping about the sexual ethics of the world today, we instead committed as a church, as a body of Christ, to display the beauty of how God designed sexuality and gender to function. Instead of being mad guys with a ring of vision, how dare you press that law, right? And getting mad at people who don't act the way that God has designed things to work. Instead of getting upset and judging and harping and being angry and arguing and watching as much of one news outlet as we can, because that's the way that we get all our factual information. Instead of all of that, what if we said, you know, why did God design it the way he did? It's for beauty and it's so things might work in a way that is so far beyond what we can imagine, right? Sex in the context of how God designed it is so beautiful. What if we allowed the world to see that beauty in singleness and in chastity and in marriage and in sexual expression and in the way that we function as men and women of God? What if we showed that to the world and they saw it because Christ enabled them to see and they got Jesus and Jesus then starts to transform them through the Holy Spirit the way that we have been transformed instead of doing it backwards. See, we know that we need Jesus to see, but we act as if the world should see without him. If you know people outside this building who don't act Christian in small ways or in large ways, and they don't know who the Lord is, and they haven't accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, if you are surprised by their actions, you are doing it wrong. You shouldn't be. Why would anyone act any different? I can tell you, if I didn't have Jesus as my Lord and Savior, if I didn't understand the gospel, if the Holy Spirit hadn't enabled me to see, I wouldn't act the way I act today. I'd be having way more fun out in the world. I'd be doing things my way and I'd be getting mine. Right? Does that make sense in the world that we live in? We need Jesus to enable us to see differently. We need his lens and everyone out there alongside of him needs his lens. And when we forget that, it gets dangerous. I quoted this guy last week. Kent Hughes says it this way. The self-satisfied attitude of we see is deadly. We comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin of the world. We see that Jesus Christ is the answer. We see moral problems. We see ethical answers. We focus on what we think we see but never really see into our hearts. It's so easy to focus on our piety or the changes in our habits and speech, but while we congratulate ourselves, we allow evil to spread unrestricted in our souls. You want to go a little older? Charles Spurgeon says it this way, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it's our supposed light that holds back his hand. When we start to think that we can see and we have all the answers, instead of allowing the gospel of Christ through the Holy Spirit to do its work of healing, of restoration, we stall, we get stuck, and we deceive ourselves. We do. We do. And so my challenge as you read the scripture for today, as you engage with John 9, is to ask yourself, by whom's power do you see? It's not by your own. Whatever way of Christian life that you have set up, whatever piety that you walk by, whatever self-righteousness you think you have, it's not worth squat to you apart from Christ. 
And when we encounter those in the world who don't see, we don't go to them and say, I have figured out how to see. Let me show you, young Padawan. No. We say, come, come to Jesus. You wouldn't believe what he's done in my life. Yeah, but I, I don't fit in with this church. I don't care. You can come with all your smelliness and your cursing and whatever it is, whatever thing it is that would make people not fit in here. Show up with it. Come drunk to church for all I care. You might hear things more clearly. Who knows? Right? Now, if you've been here for a long time, you know, this next week is not come to church drunk Sunday. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the point is we, we ought to allow people to come to this place and for us to go to their places as they are and allow the Lord to do the transforming instead of expecting them to see before they encounter the risen Christ. It's not us who make people see. But we always say, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. You can lead them to Christ and he will extend his hand and then they can take it or not take it, but you can't make them. Don't try, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to live by these self-righteous standards. It is absolutely exhausting, and it gets us nowhere. We end up like the Pharisees. Right? Well, someone came to know Jesus. Well, are they living their life in accordance with Well, no, not yet. It's going to probably take them a couple of years to, to figure that out. Uh, well, you know, we can't, we can't allow them to be a part of this until they... Really? We ought to extend a little bit of the grace that Christ gives to us and allow people some room for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Jesus walked, he encountered a blind man, and when everybody asks, why is he blind? Jesus doesn't ask why. He just says, you know, so the works of God can be displayed, and by the way, here's the works of God. Go wash, you can see. And the end result of this passage is that those who thought they saw were blind and dead inside, and that one who was blind was made to see and saw, not just physically, but spiritually, and worshipped him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that through you, we all have been enabled to see. For those of us who know the truth of the gospel, who know you as, as not just Jesus in a book, but as Lord and as Savior and as King, we thank you that we have been enabled to see. Not because we're smarter, not because we're wiser, not because we're better. As a matter of fact, none of those things. Because we're undeserving and worse, but you call us as your own. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you allow us to have sight, to see the realities of the kingdom of God, despite our frailness and our wickedness and our undeserved nature. Lord, we pray for those in our lives whom we know that need to have your sight. We pray that we might approach them with wisdom and gentleness. We pray that you would give us words to speak and encourage to speak them. That we might not come not in, in judgments or in self-righteousness, but as a fellow person who's thirsty, who's found water and just wants to lead them to the well. Thank you for who you are, for your nature, for the way that you hold judgment and grace and anger and mercy and love all in tandem somehow together perfectly. We praise you for who you are. And together, all God's people said, Amen.